Father God, would you please now speak through my words that we might hear you and hear of your love. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, we're looking today at Luke 14, um, and this is a difficult passage. A large crowd of people are starting to travel with Jesus, but there's a big difference between travelling with Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. Uh, And Jesus says that to be his disciple, we need to have made the decision to give up everything for him. Our families, our possessions, even our very lives. He's pretty clear about this. Whoever does not hate, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me, cannot be my disciple. None of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. It's not just here. Throughout Luke, we discover this. In Luke 12, Jesus speaks about how he will bring division to families, father against son and mother against daughter. In in Luke 18, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus asks him what must he do to inherit eternal life and Jesus tells him sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come and follow me and we're told that the young man becomes sad because he is rich I wonder how you feel when you hear Jesus say this quite often people come to me and say what must I do to become an Anglican Well, if I said, well, go away, hate your parents, hate your family, give away everything, take up your cross, be prepared to die, and then you can become an Anglican, I suspect we'd have an empty church. (laughs) Perhaps it is true that the gospel is really only for people who have absolutely nothing, no possessions, no family, no resources, and who hate their lives in this world. You know, as we read through Luke's Gospel, we've said this and we've seen this, we repeatedly hear Jesus say he's come for people who have nothing, the poor, the hungry, the sad now. In Luke 14, this chapter that we've been reading through and looking at, we've heard the good news is for people like the man who had dropsy, dreadful swelling who Jesus healed on the Sabbath. It's for people who sit in the lowest seat. It is, and this is said twice, for the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. And as for us, we who have so much and who don't hate our families or our lives, are we simply traveling with Jesus? We're not yet really his disciples. I warn that this is a hard passage. What is going on here? Is Jesus only for those who have absolutely nothing in this world? Those who've given everything away? Those who've had everything stripped away from them? Well, Jesus in this story, in this passage, also tells a story. He gives some advice. The first is advice about building a tower. Before you start, sit down and work out whether you have enough resources to complete the project. 
enough money, enough time, enough energy, because if you don't and you begin and don't accomplish it, you're going to look very stupid. And perhaps he's saying to people who want to follow him, before you decide whether you want to follow me, work out if you're able to do so. You don't want to be like someone who, in another picture Jesus uses, starts to plough the field and then looks back. You don't want to be someone who, like the plant that quickly grows up, has no roots and so it withers. Or the plant that is, grows up but is quickly strangled by the desires and concerns of this world. Do you have, says Jesus, what it takes to follow me? Are you good enough, committed enough, religious enough, self-disciplined enough? Do you possess sufficient willpower to keep following me when it gets tough? When you have to make decisions for me that your family and closest friends will disapprove of? if you are mocked or persecuted? Do you love God? Do you love me enough to take up your cross and follow me to death, even death by crucifixion? Peter thought he had. He said to Jesus, even if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. But only a few hours later, when a nobody, a slave girl, asks him if he is a follower of Jesus, he denies it. The point is that not one of us is able to build the tower of following Jesus. Not a single one of us. We do not have the resources. Quite often, we, I, challenge people to make the decision to follow the Lord Jesus. We invite them to pray a prayer to say they will follow him for the rest of their lives. And there are people who come up and say afterwards, I want to follow Jesus, but I know that I won't be able to keep it up. I love it when people say that because they've begun to understand what it involves to be a disciple of Jesus. They've counted the cost. They've begun to work out whether they have the resources to follow Jesus. And they realize they do not. But Jesus then gives a second piece of advice. He speaks of a king who's threatened by another king. He decides to go to war against him. But before he does that, he makes a calculation. He says, I have 10,000 soldiers. My enemy who is coming to me has 20,000 soldiers. There is no way I can defeat him. I have to make peace. In the first story about the man building the tower, Jesus is asking, can you afford to follow me? In this story, 
he's asking, can you afford not to follow me? God is the king who is coming to us. And God has everything on his side and you and I have nothing. You may think you can resist him, but it is foolish. You may think you can run from him, but you cannot. Francis Thompson, who lived from 1859 to 1907, wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. Now it is very difficult language. But he describes God like a hound who is hunting him down, chasing after him. Wherever he goes, the hound follows. It will not let him go. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him. He was someone who knew what it was to face God, the invading king, who's coming to overwhelm him, and he flees for his life. He tries to hide, and it's only when he's finally been hunted down, he says, Naked, I wait thy love's uplifted stroke. My harness, piece by piece, thou hast hewn from me, taken from me, and smitten me to my knee. I am defenceless utterly. It's only then that he realises the one from whom he is fleeing, the one who is hunting him, is the very one who loves him and who he is seeking. And God says at the end of the poem, our fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from me who dravest me. In other words, you, you drive love. In, in other words, you drove love away from yourself because you have driven my love away from you. I don't know whether you've started watching Rings of Power, but um, J.R.R. Tolkien writes of this poem. He says it's one of the most profound expressions of mature spiritual experience and it had a profound influence on his own writing. And it matches Francis Thompson's own personal story, which is amazing. There's a YouTube sort of 25 minute story of Francis Thompson, which is brilliant and I'll put the link on our social media channels. Born in Bolton, he was brought to rock bottom. He failed at three different colleges. He was homeless, sleeping rough in London. He was addicted to opium because of an earlier prescription for an illness. In those days, they gave opium to patients without realizing its addictive powers. He was selling matches on the streets. At one point, he literally had only a halfpenny, 50 kopecks, with which he bought two boxes of matches to sell. 
He really had no resources with which to build a tower. He had nothing. He was one of the poor, the crippled, the lame and blind. He was cast off from his family. He had no possessions and he hated life. And God came to him. God came to him in the form of an editor who discovered his writing and in the form of a monastic community who took him in and cared for him and weaned him off the opium. And it was in the monastery that he wrote, Hound of Heaven. We are probably not at rock bottom. We probably have more than 50 kopecks. Many of us have loving, supportive families. But the story of the man who built the tower should make us realise that however much we may think we have, however committed we feel to Jesus, none of us here have the resources to follow Jesus. In C.S. Lewis's story, Prince Caspian, Aslan, the Christ God figure, asks the young Caspian if he is sufficient to rule Narnia. Caspian replies... I don't think so, sir. I'm only a kid. To which Aslan replies, good. If you had felt sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. The only option, as people who know we do not have resources to build the tower or to face the overwhelming king, is to stop putting our trust in our position in our families, in society, in our abilities and strengths, in our possessions, and it is to surrender to him, to throw ourselves on his love and mercy. It's like learning to swim. If we can swim, we have probably forgotten how scary it is to learn to swim. I remember at school we had to pass a swimming test. We had to swim a length. The problem was that I could not swim. So I pretended to swim. I moved my arms and hopped along on one leg close to the side, desperately hoping that they would think I was swimming. I think that some of us are like that as Christians. On the surface, it sort of looks okay, but underneath, we're hopping along with one foot on the ground, trying to do it all on our own. But in order to swim, you have to be prepared to stop trusting everything that so far you have trusted in. You have to lift your foot off the ground and trust yourself to the water. Choosing to follow Jesus to become his disciple, being a disciple means you allow him to teach you, is like that. It's the point when we stop trusting in ourselves and we surrender and trust ourselves completely to the overwhelming love and mercy of God. Sometimes, sometimes God takes us to the point, as he did with Francis Thompson, where we have absolutely nothing, where we are literally poor, crippled, lame and blind. If you like, it's a bit like God takes us and he thinks there's no way this person's going to swim if we do it gently. And he takes us to the middle of the Pacific Ocean 
and he drops us into it. But usually in his mercy, God does not take us to that point, or at least not straight away. Usually he allows us to start in the shallows, and then he leads us into the depths. There will come a point, there will come a point for all of us when we have absolutely nothing apart from him. God brings us to the point when we're prepared to make the decision to follow him, not because we can afford to do so, but because we realise we cannot afford to not do so. And so we lift our foot off the ground and we entrust ourselves to him. We stop and turn to face the one who is pursuing us. We die to ourselves, to our possessions, to our families, what they say about us, what they dream for us, and we become alive to him. We die to the glamour and power and comfort and status of this world. We die to what it is we want, and we choose to become a dead person to this world. And we cast ourselves onto the love of the Lord Jesus. Of course, we have to make that decision to die to the expectations of our culture, our possessions, our life, our ability to build the tower. That's what it means to take up our cross daily. We have to die to that daily. It's as if we live in a world of swimming sceptics who say, of course the water will never hold you up. And it's easy because there are so many voices coming at us to listen to them and to think what they're saying is true and to put our foot on the ground and try to hop along. But as people, as men and women who have made that first decision to trust the Lord Jesus with our lives, we know that if we cast ourselves on him, he will never let us down. <laughs>